trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, we welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. By the way, in this hour of the show, I'm going to uh, do my best to illustrate why we need to be wrong thinkers and why you need to be one of us. I'm going to give you some powerful incentive to come and join the wrong thinkers, too. Uh, first of all, an invitation. Swing by the website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You can check out the show notes. I have links to all of the different articles and the different guests who I have on. Got a great guest coming up in my other hour of the show. We're going to be talking with Nick Nicholas. And I'll just give you this tease. He had a near-death experience. And through what he learned from that near-death experience, he was able to... Uh, to gain control of his life, learn to take control of his fears, learn to take control of his anxieties. Now, that's what he helps other people do full-time. It's a fascinating story, and I hope you'll you'll tune in to hear it. But let's, uh, let's begin, first of all, by thanking our sponsors, the uh, Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Thank you, John, and thank you, Heather. I appreciate uh, your sponsorship and, and uh, not only being there for, for helping make this program possible, but being there for anybody in the market for a, a new home mortgage or even a refinance. Also, uh, thanks to Firesteel.com. We've appreciated having them as a sponsor on the show. So let's talk about the need for fact checkers. I don't know why this bugs me the way that it does, but it, it, it just... It just makes me furious. We've got these social media fact checkers working day and night, and it's it's probably because I'm still using, you know, tightly controlled platforms like Facebook, which, by the way, is stepping up its censorship moves as of October 1st. And it's so irritating to see an article. You know what? Look, I'm just trying to find information. I don't, <clears throat> I don't have this agenda of I'm going to overthrow the world and replace it with only people who think like me. I want to know the truth, but I, f- I have this sense, and maybe you have it too, that someone is trying desperately hard to make sure that we only know the truth that they approve of. In other words, the official narrative. And there is there's some very open, unapologetic censorship that takes place as a result. And uh, and I'm gonna I'm going to lean on Brother Beck, yes, Glenn Beck, for a moment here to explain where we are. First of all, I have to give a hat tip to uh, Christian Watson, who's the host of the Pensive Politics podcast. Christian, thank you for sharing this clip on Twitter. Christian shared this saying, this is the appropriate response to censorship, and that is channel the energy of the market to create alternative avenues of communications, a much more palatable, much more ethical method than government regulation. Here's what Glenn Beck had to say. Use a computer or a smartphone or Alexa or anything. Really, whether you like it or not, you are part of their program. We all are. And it has happened so subtly and so fast that most Americans don't even notice what big tech is doing to all of us. Big tech has laid the groundwork to purge voices that it doesn't agree with. We know this. We're doing everything we can to fight it. Let me just stop here and say the one thing that I want to make sure we always have is a connection with you. 
I want you to sign up for our Blaze TV. If you can't afford to be a subscriber, I understand. Get the newsletter. Go to glenbeck.com. Get my newsletter. I need to be able to have a direct line to you. And if you can, become a subscriber. We just announced some really exciting things with Dave Rubin and some other things that are going on in the Blaze right now. Free speech needs to exist in America. And right now, I believe there may come a time very soon where we can't get the truth to you using these public platforms. Like right now, we're on YouTube. Wait until the end of the show. How long does that last? But we can always count on delivering the truth are on our own through a platform that I started 10 years ago, actually 10 years ago last week, The Blaze. Tonight, I want to ask if you will support us and become a member of The Blaze family. Go to blazetv.com, use the promo code BIGTECH, and you'll get $20 off your subscription. Wait until after the show if you don't believe me that it's going to be worth it. All right, so you get the picture there. And by the way, everything Glenn Beck just said about The Blaze, I want you to apply that to some of the other platforms that are available, including this one. You can you can become a subscriber to uh, to my program, The Brian Hyde Show. You can subscribe to Loving Liberty. You can subscribe to fedbyravensmedia.com. The point is, his point is very well taken. We have to build these other platforms. And this is, I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn here, but um, in reality, what I want to do is just express gratitude that I have had the opportunity and I continue to have the opportunity to help people build platforms from which truth can be spoken. So we are in the midst right now of, of this solution to big tech censorship. And it feels great. Yes, we're small. Yes, we don't have nearly the reach, you know, that that uh, Facebook or Twitter or or some of these uh, these other major platforms have. That's okay. We we are just starting with uh, with truth and providing resources for wrong thinkers like you. And it's such an honor to be able to do so. Now let's dive in and talk about uh, some of the other uh, other issues of the day. I know that. Uh, Nothing frosts my Cheerios quicker than to to see someone post an article about, um, for instance, COVID-19. Perhaps you've heard of it. There's little controversy about, you know, what to believe and what not to. And it's crazy. Every time you see, you know, the fact checker pop up on Facebook, well, this is partly false information according to our independent fact checkers. And yet uh, those independent fact checkers, as we pointed out yesterday, more often than not, they're not there to help shed light on, on this or to give you clarity or broader information from which you can make a more informed conclusion. No, they're, they're there to keep you on narrative, keep you on script with the official narrative. And so they'll, they'll mangle the truth in order to fit that official narrative, which just happens by some remarkable coincidence to play into the hands of those who wish to uh, monopolize power or consolidate power using fear of a virus as their tool. Well, this is where I'm grateful for individuals like James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies, host of the Words and Numbers podcast. Um, I, I've had the privilege over the last few weeks to talk with James, and I've, I've, unfortunately my schedule has been crazy enough. I have missed the chance to, to get him on the show, but I'm, I'm going to swear to you right now, this is something I'm going to correct starting next week, because things will be a little bit more sane. But uh, I, I love their take 
These are very well-educated, very principled and thoughtful commentators. And they're not just there for self-aggrandizement. They're not there to build a brand. They're there to to talk about things in a way that, that actually sheds some light, brings new information into the equation. And when it comes to changing minds, new information really is, that's the key. But they have this excellent write-up about the COVID-19 catastrophe. And I wanted to share that with you just because the fact-checkers would not want you to know this. <laughs> so, in, in the spirit of resistance, here's what they have to say. James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies say it's been five months since the American people were told they would be under house arrest for three weeks to flatten the curve under the guise of protecting us from COVID-19. America's politicians completed one of the greatest nonviolent power grabs in U.S. history, pushing the lockdowns well beyond the initial three-week prediction, thereby taking control of 330 million lives. Now, to justify this, they shifted the goalposts from flattening the curve to halting transmission of the coronavirus entirely. Some even talked about maintaining lockdowns, at least in part, until a vaccine is developed. And that could take years. Quel surprise. <laughs> well, who would have thought they would do this? Now, I'm going to come back to their article in just a moment. But before I do, I just want to, I want to make clear, I have a personal stake in this matter. And, and it's, I know COVID-19, it's not all about me, but I just want to get to give you an illustration of how these, these continuing lockdowns and the continuing fear over COVID is affecting our lives. I have had the privilege this year of learning who my biological parents are. And I actually had the privilege a few weeks ago, I shared this with you, of meeting my biological mother and her family for the first time. Absolutely remarkable event. I have been in touch with my biological dad as well and have been looking forward to visiting with him. In fact, we, we tentatively had something set up for next month for us to get together and, and meet face-to-face for the first time. And because of his age, he is in a high-risk category. And so I received a, an email from him the other day, and, and it, just, it just said, I'm so sorry, but I just don't think I am comfortable doing a face-to-face meeting until there is a vaccine. Now, I'm not faulting him. I'm not saying, gee, he shouldn't be so afraid. But, you know, it's of all the, of all the things I would like to see happen this year, that is one of the things I was really hoping for. Thanks a lot, COVID-19. We'll be back right after this break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you a, uh, an article by Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan, two of the brilliant minds that uh, I have met through the Foundation for Economic Education. What a great collection of people who are out there uh, putting information out there that's actually useful Stuff that will make your life better, make your understanding of the world better, and and basically just make you a more well-rounded person in so many ways. In this case, James and Anthony are talking about the COVID-19 catastrophe. And they ask the question, how did it come to pass that a nation of 330 million was effectively imprisoned with virtually every sector of the economy shut down either in part or in total? 
And they say the answer to this question is as clear as it was wrong. In the early days of COVID-19, politicians and experts lined up to tell us that if we did nothing, up to 2.2 million Americans would die over the balance of 2020. Now, as of late August, there have been fewer than 170,000 COVID-19 deaths in the United States. And if the 2.2 million projection was accurate, then the U.S. lockdown saved in the neighborhood of 2 million lives. But at what cost? In early March, the Congressional Budget Office predicted that the economic output of the United States economy over the period 2020 through 2025 would total $120 trillion. Just four months later, and because of the COVID lockdown, the CBO reduced its projection by almost $10 trillion. Now, that $10 trillion difference is income Americans would have earned had the lockdown not happened, but now won't. And they point out that economists outside the CBO have estimated this loss at nearly $14 trillion. For perspective, the median U.S. household earns $63,000. A $10 trillion loss is equivalent to wiping out the incomes of 30 million U.S. households each year for more than five years. They say our desire to keep people safe, no matter the cost, has already resulted in 10 million Americans being unemployed. By the time things have returned to normal, the total price tag, just in terms of lost incomes and adjusted for inflation, will have exceeded the costs of all the wars the U.S. has ever fought, from the American Revolution to Afghanistan combined. And the costs are staggering. As of August, estimates from Chambers of Commerce indicate that around one-third of the 240,000 small businesses in New York City have permanently closed. Now, if that ratio holds for small businesses elsewhere, we could see around 10 million small businesses close permanently across the country. Major retail bankruptcies in the U.S. have been every bit as disconcerting. All in, they say the effort to save 2 million lives from COVID-19 will end up costing us somewhere in the neighborhood of around $7 million per life saved. People generally assume the lockdown was worth this massive cost, but... They point out there are a couple of things to consider before drawing that conclusion. First, for the same cost, could we have saved even more lives than we did by doing other things? Second, how plausible was the prediction of 2 million dead in the first place? See, if saving lives simply rather than saving lives from COVID-19 were our goal, we could have likely saved more than 2 million lives and at a lower cost. How so? For every $14,000 spent on smoke and heat detectors in homes, a life is saved. For every $260,000 spent on widening shoulders on rural roads, a life is saved. For every $5 million spent putting seat belts on school buses, a life is saved. And then they point out each year 650,000 Americans die from heart disease. 600,000 die from cancer, 430,000 die from lung disease, stroke, and Alzheimer's. To fight these diseases, Congress allocated $6 billion for cancer research to the National Cancer Institute and another $30 billion, or $39 billion, rather, to the National Institutes of Health in 2018. They say the lockdown will cost us more than 300 times this amount for a 300-fold increase to NCI and NIH budgets, we might well have eradicated heart disease, cancer, lung disease, and Alzheimer's. Over just a couple of years, that would have saved far more than 2 million lives. 
So they're saying here the lesson is a simple one. There is no policy that just simply saves lives. The best we can do is to make responsible trade-offs. Did the lockdown save lives? Some people claim they did, at least uh, were at a cost, rather, of $7 million per life saved, if the initial estimates were correct, while others failed to establish any connection between lockdowns and lives saved. Regardless, their point is there are all manner of other trade-offs here. And those lockdowns didn't just cost millions of people's livelihoods. They also cost people's lives. Preliminary evidence points to a rise in suicides nationwide. Calls to suicide hotlines are up nearly 50% since before the lockdown. People are less inclined to keep medical appointments. And as a result, life-saving diagnoses are not being made. Treatments are not being administered. Drug overdoses are up. There's evidence that instances of domestic violence are on the rise, too. But what if the lockdown didn't actually save 2 million lives. There is strong, if not irrefutable, evidence that the initial projections of COVID-19 deaths were wildly overstated. We can refer to a natural experiment in Sweden for some clarity. Sweden's government did not lock down the country's economy, though it recommended that citizens practice social distancing and it banned gatherings of more than 50 people. Spanish epidemiologists took the or Swedish epidemiologists rather took the Imperial College of London model, the same model that predicted 2.2 million COVID-19 deaths for the U.S. and applied it to Sweden. That model predicted that by July 1st, Sweden would have suffered 96,000 deaths if it did nothing, and 81,600 deaths with the policies that it did employ. In fact, by July 1st, Sweden had suffered only 5,500 deaths. The ICL model overestimated Sweden's COVID deaths by a factor of nearly 15. And James Harrigan and Anthony Davies say if the ICL model overestimated U.S. COVID deaths merely by a factor of 10, the number of Americans who would have died had we not locked down the country but instead practiced social distancing and banned gatherings of more than 50 people would have been around 220,000. To date, The CDC reports around 170,000 COVID deaths in the U.S. In other words, adjusting even conservatively for the ICL model's demonstrated error, it appears that the $14 trillion lockdown perhaps saved about 50,000 lives. If that's the case, the cost of saving lives via the lockdown was not $7 million each. The cost was over a quarter of a billion dollars each. And finally, they point out there is mounting evidence that even if targeted closures had been necessary, a general lockdown wasn't. 80% of COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. are among those 65 and older. Even if ICL's flawed model had been correct and we'd been facing the possibility of 2.2 million deaths, only 400,000 of those would have been among working-age Americans. That's less than two-tenths of 1% of working-age Americans. Social distancing and mandatory masks might have reduced that further, We could have quarantined the elderly, saved nearly all the lives that even the most dire predictions anticipated, and let the economy continue on as usual. But we didn't. Of course, in March, we knew a lot less than we do now. In the face of 2.2 million likely deaths, many claimed that locking down the economy was the right thing to do. Over the subsequent weeks, as data emerged that the threat was far less deadly and far more focused than than it had at first appeared, Politicians could have released the lockdown, but they didn't. 
And they didn't because politicians invariably feel the need to do something, despite volumes of evidence from disparate fields like economics and social work and ecology and medicine. It never seems to occur to politicians that doing less or even doing nothing is by far the better approach. Why should it occur to them? When politicians act and their actions do more harm than good, they always say the same thing. Well, imagine how bad it would have been if we had not acted. But the difference is this time we have evidence. We can compare what happened when politicians reacted with a heavy hand to what happened when they reacted with a light touch. And the evidence we have so far points to the same conclusion. Our politicians destroyed our economy unnecessarily. This is great stuff, wouldn't you say? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I hope you liked that uh, commentary that I shared in the last uh, segment from Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan from the uh, Words and Numbers podcast. That is good stuff. The COVID-19 catastrophe. And I think they zeroed in on it. I don't think they're being unduly harsh on politicians, by the way. You know, when they talk about how our politicians destroyed our economy unnecessarily. And the worst part of it is that the politicians are still patting each other on the back. Well, we did well, don't you think? We did a great job here. They're congratulating themselves. And when the next crisis comes along, this is something else that, uh, that Antony and James warn. These politicians will land on the same kind of heavy-handed solutions they did this time. The only thing that will chasten them is the anger of the American people. Politicians did far more harm to Americans than COVID-19 did. That's what the American people need to remember the next time these politicians start down the same pointless road. Because they will. Spot freaking on. That is just dead on. All right, I'm going to shift gears here. Um, So the mask madness. We haven't talked about masks a great deal in the last couple of days, but I thought, uh, yeah, maybe it's time to to revisit this, only because I saw a post that uh, Ammon Bundy shared yesterday. And and, and I'm going to offer this aside here. I've heard a number of people opine on Ammon Bundy. Well, I know everything about Ammon Bundy supports Black Lives Matters. Ammon Bundy this, Ammon Bundy that. Um, There are a lot of people who have half-truths or incomplete knowledge about uh, Ammon and what he stands for. And I know Ammon saying, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak at a Black Lives Matter event does not mean that Ammon has suddenly turned around and embraces Marxism. Nor does it mean that he hates cops, although you consider what this guy went through. Federalized stormtrooper cops coming and terrorizing him and his family, stealing their cattle, you know, putting a, a militarized task force of 200 heavily armed cops right there on their ranch, snipers, outposts, listening devices, lasers, the whole nine yards. Yeah, you might think that uh, he would know a thing or two about uh, what happens when law enforcement slips off its leash. And then, of course, being in prison for a couple of years while awaiting trial, being treated like a piece of property by those same federal police officers, well, marshals to be exact, yeah, it was, uh, I, I could see where it might leave a bad taste in his mouth. 
But that's beside the point. My point is simply this. Ammon has been possibly the most consistent defender of liberty that I know of. And I mean consistent in the sense that he is willing to put his life on the line. He is willing to have skin in the game. He's willing to suffer for his beliefs. So all of us armchair quarterbacks back there, well, he could have done it this way and he should have done it that way. That's all fine and dandy. And you're talking the talk real well. Try walking the walk and then get back to me. Let me know how that goes for you. Let me know how popular you are. Let me know if anybody misunderstands or misrepresents you or goes off half-cocked on what they think you're really about. All right, rant over. But I'm about to start another rant. <laughs> and, and actually, Ammon shared this yesterday on Facebook. He said, we had to call the sheriff just to make a withdrawal from the bank. Now, a guy who hates cops, would he call the sheriff? Well, listen on. This is why he had to, to get the sheriff involved. He says his daughter has been 18 for less than two weeks. She went into Wells Fargo to withdraw some cash, and they kicked her out of the bank because she would not wear a mask. Now, keep in mind, there's no drive-up window. Her ATM would not give her the amount she needed. And the Wells Fargo manager said they would not help unless she complied with the mask policy. And Ammon says that puts my daughter in a position to go against what she believes and participate in a lie or not be able to get her money out of the bank. She was upset and she kept saying it was her money. They had no right to keep her, keep it from her. But apparently the bank manager did not care. So she got home. She told Ammon about it. He called the sheriff's office and reported the bank was withholding people's money. Now, to the sheriff's credit, the sheriff sent two deputies to the bank, and they demanded that Wells Fargo employees make the withdrawal for his daughter. To which Ammon says a big thank you to the officers. Now, of course, he says Wells Fargo has been doing this to people all over the country. He says my entire family is now in the process of closing all of our accounts with them. In fact, he says if you have an account with, the Wells, Far with Wells Fargo, we hope you'll close it. He says, I know it's a pain to go through with the new bank, but the loss of liberty is much more of a pain. And here's the point. It's through corporate policies influenced by government manipulations that the latest attack of, on liberty is taking place. Do not support companies that do not support liberty. Now, in his case, in his neck of the woods, he says, by the way, Clarity Credit Union is in our hometown. They don't require masks and they don't require that a person or they take they actually do require that a person take off their mask for identification and security reasons when they make a transaction. He says, we do business with them now and we've been very satisfied. His point is simply, if you're going to do business, do it with those who actually value freedom. I know I'm thinking the same thing. I have accounts at Wells Fargo. I've, I haven't been to the bank in months. I've been doing everything uh, remotely. I deposit checks, you know, through my cell phone. And, and, and while I like that and everything, this kind of stuff makes my blood boil. Because I think he's accurately, develop, he's, he's accurately describing something, and that is there, there is a, a clampdown on freedom, and it's being enforced through corporations who are beholden to government well, we have to do this. Why, you know, they regulate us. And if we don't, it could come back to bite us. I know it's a pain. I know it requires extra effort. But I think it just may be worth seeking out those businesses 
that don't require you to bend the knee or kiss the ring and show your obedience. I totally understand if people think, but you're just making more of this than you have to. Just put on the mask. In my heart, I feel like there is more at stake here than just simply a matter of, I'm a proud man, I'll never put the mask on. I think it comes down to, I'm the kind of person who needs to be counted on not to submit to something that is taking us in a direction we do not really want to go. Unfortunately, if you, if you feel that way, as I do, you better be, prepare, be prepared to experience pushback and to feel unpopular. I don't think it's ever been the case, though, throughout history where standing up for what, uh, what your conscience tells you is the right thing has necessarily been the way to popularity. In fact, usually it's exactly the opposite. So if nothing else, you should be in pretty good company. All right, shifting gears once again. Just because someone doesn't agree with you doesn't mean you need to write them off. And I've been guilty of this way too many times in my life. It's something I actually regret. Well, pff, I'll never get through to that person, so why should I even talk to him? Kent McManigal, writing for EverythingVoluntary.com, has a great article on how new information will change minds. This really struck home, and it confirmed a couple of things that I've believed actually for some time. Kent says it very well, though. He says, quick, name something you really and truly believe, even though you know it's wrong. You can't, can you? He says, if you knew your belief was wrong, you'd change it. And it's the same for every person on earth, no matter how different their beliefs are from yours. No matter how certain you are that they are wrong, they are just as certain that your different beliefs are wrong. If they believed they were wrong, they'd change their minds, even if they wouldn't admit in public they did so. He says no one believes they are wrong or they'd stop believing what they believe and would believe something else they believe is correct. How confusing is this? He says you're not going to change minds by saying you're wrong. You're probably not even going to change their beliefs with evidence or information either. Now he says, I'm not claiming evidence and information are useless and I can't change people's beliefs. I know from experience they can. Actually, he says, evidence and information can change people's beliefs. But he says, my beliefs have changed since I was young. And the interesting thing is, in every case, I believed that I was right until new information made me change my mind. Afterwards, I once again believed I was right until the next time something made me change my mind again. Now, he says, I never regretted changing my mind, but I occasionally wished what I believed before had been right. The old belief was more comfortable or comforting than the new belief. If I could still believe what I believed before, I wouldn't have changed my belief. He says, I'm sure my interpretation of the world is correct, as you are sure yours is correct. I'm sure yours is wrong, where it differs from mine, as you are sure of the opposite. How can this stalemate be broken, or should it be? He says, although no one's going to automatically change their beliefs when presented with new evidence or information, you shouldn't let that stop you. Put it out there. Let them accept it or not. People are more likely to accept information that agrees with what they already believe, but sometimes... Even years later, he says, the new information finally germinates and starts to grow. He says, I've had people write to me to let me know something I said years ago, finally broke through their defenses, often due to events, and changed long-held beliefs. It does happen. You just got to be patient.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, we are back. And once again, I want to issue this uh, this slight challenge and uh, invitation, if you will. Please go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Take a look. You'll find the show notes there. You'll find uh, this is the important thing. You will find a couple of buttons that I hope will be of interest. One of them invites you to become a wrong thinker. And there are a couple of things you can do here. I want you to subscribe to the podcast. I want you to subscribe to the website. And by the way, we're going to make it very worthwhile for those who subscribe during the month of September. Just was talking with Spencer Worthington from HSL Ammo. He is making available for us to give away 500 rounds of 9mm ammo. You don't have to buy anything. You do not have to become a patron sponsor of this show, although I would tell you I would appreciate it if you did. That's not a requirement, though. Simply subscribe at thebrianhydeshow.com. Just subscribe. You will be in the running. At the end of the month, we will draw for a winner 500 rounds of 9mm ammo from HSL Ammo. And a big thank you to Spencer Worthington for making that possible. What a stand-up guy, and, and what a great incentive for you to join the wrong thinkers and, uh, and, and revel in wrong think. So I'm kind of thinking about uh, the, the commentary I shared in the last segment uh, from Kent McManigal. And, and I love his take on don't be so fast to condemn people who believe differently than you do because you may end up on the same side eventually. And this doesn't mean you have to lie or you have to give up about what you believe just to make someone more comfortable. You can still be firm in your beliefs without being a jerk about it, right? And the reason this jumped out at me today was because um, I mentioned it yesterday. I've had a couple of people reach out to me in the last, uh, just in the last couple of days that have, uh, they come from different places on the political spectrum. In other words, they do not see things the way that I see things. But they're good people. I mean, really, they are sincerely good people, and they've been very actively involved. They are trying to find solutions. They're not out there trying to control the world and bend everybody to their will. I think that's one of the reasons why there's a friendship between us. And it would be foolish to write them off just because at this point, there are things where we don't see eye to eye. There is some common ground. And when we can find that common ground, that's where we need to focus our efforts. Other things, they can wait. But eventually you may find something that you believe in strongly enough and that they believe in strongly enough that you can join together, you can speak with one voice. I wish more people would practice that. I wish I was better at practicing that. I'm trying. I really am. I'm putting forth serious effort. And that's a big shift because I didn't always feel that way. I do believe it's the more productive path, though, to opening minds and hopefully helping to, to bring people to an understanding of uh, some of the timeless truths that we've forgotten. They're not dependent on Republican platforms or Democratic platforms. I'm talking wisdom. Things that remain true regardless of the time or place in which they're applied. Speaking of wisdom, very happy to share with you another commentary from Barry Brownstein. And I wish that we had had something like this four years ago. But since it's an election year, and since the election year tribalism is, is in full cry, 
I think this may be a very timely essay. And it just simply is, the president is not our national savior. Now, what really sparked my interest in this yesterday was um, I was working at my side gig. A young man showed up there um, wearing a T-shirt. I can't tell you word for word what the T-shirt said, but it uh, the T-shirt said, Trump 2020 or we're effed. Yes, it said the word. It said the F-bomb right there on it. And I thought, wow. And I, mean, I told the guy, I said, hey, that's, uh, that's quite a T-shirt. And he just kind of laughed and... I asked him, you know, do you, do you worry that you might offend the wrong person by that? He goes, we have nothing to lose at this point. He goes, I'm just, I'm going to wear it and I'll take whatever chances. And I'm like, okay, I kind of get where he's coming from. But it also portrays a mentality. I think that so much is riding on this presidential election. We've got to get this right. And this is where Barry Brownstein, I think, has a very solid bit of analysis that's worth considering. He says, Joe Biden wants you to believe he will end the American darkness as he battles for the soul of the nation. He recently lamented people are losing faith in what the president says. Now, Barry says, faith is complete trust based on something other than proof. What more dangerous idea is there for a free people to have than to to hold than to have faith in what any politician says, let alone Joe Biden or Donald Trump? At the Republican convention, one speaker proclaimed Trump is the bodyguard of Western civilization. By the way, I've heard a lot of people say some variant of that as well. The conservative Washington Examiner, while harshly critical of the extreme platform of Biden and Democrats, didn't spare Trump from criticism. Trump's re-election agenda was described as a magic wish list. Wish list rather. Trump might as well be promising voters he'll sprinkle fairy dust on them to make them all princes and princesses. Both the Democrats and Republicans are long on promises and short on principles. And Barry Brownstein asks, when did Americans settle into the idea of an imperial presidency. He says, Gene Healy, in his book, The Cult of the Presidency, exposes the belief that some Americans hold that the president should take the role of a national savior. Healy wrote his book in 2008, observing the partisan bitterness of American politics, which seems to have gotten worse. Yet Healy points out the common ground between the two camps. Quote, Amid all the bitterness, it's easy to miss the fact that, at bottom, both left and right agree on the boundless nature of of presidential responsibility. Healy continues, neither left nor right sees the president as the framer saw him, a constitutionally constrained chief executive with an important but limited job to defend the country when attacked, check Congress when it violates the Constitution, enforce the law, and little else. Today, for conservatives as well as liberals, it's the president's job to protect us from harm, to grow the economy, to spread democracy and American ideals abroad, even to heal spiritual malaise, end quote. Barry Brownstein says Healy notes that few people find anything amiss in the notion that it's the president's duty to solve all large national problems and to unite us all in the service of a higher calling. Like fish that don't notice the water they swim in, the vision of the president as national guardian and redeemer is so ubiquitous that it goes unnoticed. The vision of the president as national guardian Healy argues, is not appropriate for a self-governing republic or a limited constitutional government. Now, before he became president, John Adams was the first vice president of the United States. Adams, while not acting on President George Washington's behalf, believed in the necessity of a fancy title for the president. At Adams' insistence, the Senate appointed a title committee which proposed that the president be addressed as His Highness, the President of the United States and Protector of their Liberties. 
but that proposal was soundly rejected by Senator William McClay. Healy writes that on the floor of the Senate, McClay was up from his chair to object at the merest hint of anti-Republican language, such as a reference to the president's most gracious speech or a resolution that suggested the president had rescued the United States from anarchy and confusion. Pointing to the Constitution, McClay restated, fancy titles were unconstitutional and idolatrous. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8, no titles of nobility shall be granted by the United States. Washington himself, consistent with the founders' intent, that the president's primary duty was to see that the laws were faithfully executed, referred to the president as the chief magistrate. Healy writes, The president has been the central figure in American political life, but the framers never thought of the president as America's national leader. And Healy continues, The very notion of national leadership raised the possibility of authoritarian rule by a demagogue who would create an atmosphere of crisis in order to enhance his power. To foreclose that possibility, the powers of the chief magistrate, meaning the president, would be carefully limited. Along with executing laws passed by Congress, the president's duty was to use the veto when Congress transgressed its constitutional bounds. Healy argues soundly the president as chief magistrate was never intended to save the national soul. Interesting. Barry Brownstein, there's much more to this article, but, but I want you to check this out for yourself. He points out that today both Trump and Biden promised to defeat COVID-19, and as the public cheers, our liberties continue to slip away. COVID-19 has created public acceptance of erosions to liberty we could not have imagined a mere six months ago. Barry Brownstein points out we've seen state governors issue tyrannical COVID-19 orders, proving that Alexander Hamilton, who he also cites in this, is a, was, a, was a prophet, or at least prophetic. If elected, Biden and Harris promise a national mask mandate. Oh boy. And possibly a nationwide lockdown. No doubt the faithful will obediently cheer and comply with other new executive orders. He says, if we the people want a president who will save the soul of the nation, or a president who will wage war on COVID-19... The America that emerges will bear no resemblance to the republic the founders bequeathed us. That is some much-needed perspective, again, from Barry Brownstein. You will find it in the show notes, and I hope you'll look at it. Go to thebrianheidshow.com and then share it widely, because this deserves to be shared. This is... Is the Brian Hyde Show.